Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the summer of 1003, a Viking army descended on southern Wiltshire. Their target was the town of Wilton. Wilton was a place of deep symbolic significance to the Anglo-Saxon monarchy. It was the site of a nunnery where many members of the royal family had been nuns. Some of them had become saints. There was no prospect then that the English would cede this holy place to the invading Danes. Sure enough, an Anglo-Saxon army drew up on the hill above Wilton to oppose the Danish advance. The man in charge looked down at the Danes spread out below him. And then, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he feigned himself ill and began to retch and vomit and said that he was sick. His bowels loosened. His legs gave way beneath him. He turned and he ran. The entire English army went with him. The Vikings captured Wilton and put it to the torch. Dominic Sandbrook with me. This is not the kind of behaviour that we want to see no. on Wednesday, is it, from our brave boys on Wembley if they get confronted? Well, Thomas, when they get confronted by the Danes, but if they have to face a penalty shootout. This is such, such a depressing way to start. I mean, if Gareth Southgate's <laughs> lads behave like that on Wednesday evening... I'd, that would be the worst moments in the history of English sport, surely. You can't imagine Harry Maguire turning and running. No, away no, no, that, he won't. Pretending he won't. to be sick. No. Um, but I think it, it, it does draw attention to the way in which, I mean, we've, we've, so we went on Adrian Charles to talk about Anglo-Scottish rivalry, which obviously has a very distinguished pedigree. And we've done we a podcast on, Radio on um, yeah. Anglo-German rivalry. But I reckon uh, in some ways, this is, this is the oldest rivalry of all. And I say that because England and Denmark are, of all the, uh, the the countries that are playing in the Euros, are the ones with the oldest continuous history. Yeah, but I mean, before we get into the elements of that history, I mean, there's an argument, isn't there, that um, England was created. I mean, we've talked before about how Britain was created as, a, as an anti-French kind of enterprise. Couldn't you argue that England exists because of the Danes, that England Absolutely. was created as an Absolutely. anti-Danish yes. sort of conglomeration? Absolutely, because because it's uh, it's Danish invasion that essentially destroys the kind of patchwork of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that had previously existed. So Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia all get demolished. The only one that holds out, I'm proud to say, is Wessex, the kingdom <laughs> of the West Saxons, where I come from. What about Mercia? Um, so, Mercia held out, didn't it? No, its king runs away. All oh, right, I'm afraid. Cool. I'm afraid. Um, but uh, I, I grew up just outside Wilton, so that's why I'm very familiar yeah. with that particular story. Yeah. Uh, and its heroic king, Alfred, um, his heroic son, Edward, his heroic daughter, Athelflad, his heroic grandson, Athelstan, um, they, uh, they, they lead the fight back against the Danes, um, and the fight back enables them to kind of reconstitute Wessex as the, the kingdom of England. So before we get into all this and all the events of that story, they rock up at Lindisfarne, don't they? The Vikings. That's the most one of them. Used to be one of the most famous dates in in English history. Um, so what year? What year is that? That they they That's arrive and they ravage the monastery and stuff. Seven nine three. And at that point, so here's my question: as a complete and utter non-specialist, when I learned about that um, at school or in the sort of through the Ladybird books that we were talking about in the children's history episode, mm-hmm. um, 
the, the words Vikings and Danes were used kind of interchangeably. Are these people from Denmark? Are they Danes? That's a really, really good question. And one that is very difficult to answer because um, these kind of markers in early medieval history are incredibly slippery, really, really hard to pin down. So they're described as Northmen, but right. Swedes were called Northmen, uh, but Northmen are also Danes. Um, Danes um, are, so in poetry, are often Jutes. Um, the Jutes, say to Asser, the biography of, of Alfred, are, are Goths. So there's an incredible sense of confusion about it. Yeah. So, so essentially, the Danes in in, um, in in the Anglo-Saxon period, they are Northmen in general. Say what we would call Vikings. Yeah. Um, they are they're they're they're, they're members of the of uh, the war bands that attack um, France. So the Vikings right. attack France. So they are called Danes. And they, when they get given become Normans, don't they? Yeah. So Normans are also called Danes, confusingly. <laughs> um, the Danes are, in, in the English context, are the people who invade England, who carve it up, who, who then get given a chunk of territory that comes to be called the Dane law. Yeah. Um, they are also inhabitants of Denmark. And that's why I say that it's not just England. It's also, in a sense, the kind of the, the Viking Age creates this unitary kingdom of Denmark, which is also very, very ancient. Yeah. Um, and that's why this kind of rivalry is, is, is so fascinating, intriguing, and can be, and in fact, can be traced back even further than, um, the, the, than the Viking invasions, because of course, the Danes appear in Beowulf. Which so, yeah, tell we, us about we, we, Beowulf in the day. Okay, then. so 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 Beowulf is um, the kind of the greatest epic in Old English, and we we don't know when it's written down. So there are kind of various alternatives. Maybe it's it's very early. Maybe it's the time of Alfred. Maybe it, it's the time of it's in the tenth century. We, we, we're not sure, but it it doesn't actually feature anyone from England, but it does feature um, Beowulf, um, who's a geat who from southern Sweden, yeah. who goes to see a, a king called. Hrothgar, who is the king of the Danes. At Herot. At Herot, which then provides the model for Tolkien's um, The the Hall of of Theoden in Lord of the Rings. Medusald. But also there's a a figure in uh, Beowulf who's called Hygelac, who is described by um, uh, Gregory of Tours, the Frankish writer, uh, as uh, invading and attacking um, Gaul in the 6th century. Okay. So... Actually, the roots of the Danes as raiders, as poets, as having kind of interaction with the English is is is, is even older than the age of Alfred, and and, yeah. and even older than the the attack on Lindisfarne. So that's why this is you know for, for anyone with, with with a sense of history, um, the sight of Danish fans in the stands with their <laughs> their Viking horns and their yeah. their our wrestling an- blonde beards is very exciting. Well, I was about to say our ancestors would have regarded this with utter terror, wouldn't they? Because of course they learned to dread the sight of the the dragon ships and the raiders pouring off the ships but i say our ancestors but you know there's been tons of sort of studies of dna and stuff aren't i mean isn't there a case that basically this is this is a a family a family row really because a lot of us are danes one way or another well i mean interesting that's a point made by um admiral nelson 
who I'm sure we'll come to later in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he famously attacks Copenhagen in 801, sinks the Danish fleet. And then shortly after he's done that, he writes a letter to the Danish authorities in which he, he, he hails them as the brothers of Englishmen, the Danes, which oh, is very fraternal nice, of him to have I just. Bet they, I bet they forgave him for that then. Yeah, but, but there's a measure of truth to it that, that of course, um, you know, as with the Scots, as with the Germans, this isn't just a story of rivalry. Um, yeah, this is also you know there's a close sense of kinship here, um, and that's and that's why it, it, the start of Beowulf, this this famous old English epic, has a Danish setting. Well, I mean, lots of our listeners will probably know, particularly the British listeners, that if you go east in England, if you go north and east, you get all these places that are called Thwaite and Thorpe and so on at the end of the name, and those are the places where the Danes settled, aren't they? They're part of the yeah. the Dane law, the the part of England that was Danish, and of course. There are two points, am I right in thinking, again, as an utter non-specialist and outsider to all this, that there are sort of two heroic periods of Danish conquest in England. So there's the one at the time of Alfred and all of that stuff. And then there's later on with, I'm sure we're going to have some fun with, Knut. Um, <laughs> the amusingly named Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah, so... so, so um... Alfred Alfred um, lives in the context of the invasion of what's called the Great Northern Army, which is this this massive kind of war band which first demolishes the Kingdom of Northumbria in the north, uh, occupies York. So that's why in the north you get this this very strong kind of Danish presence and sense. They're there for for, for decades, yeah. and, in fact, centuries. And this is based in York, isn't it? Yeah, York is but, the capital of the sort of. That but right? they then they then move on East Anglia. Okay. And there's a, there's a a kind of heroic story around this. We 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 wave the flag of Saint George at the football, but we could very easily have a very different emblem. We could have a, a crown and two arrows as the emblem of England, right. because the national saint of of England for much of the Middle Ages was Saint Edmund, who was the king of the East Angles, who was captured by the Vikings by the Danes refused to apostatize, refused to give up his Christianity and was shot to death with with arrows by the Danes. Now, Tom, I know this because it's in Bernard Cornwell and in the TV adaptation of The Last Kingdom, they have a great scene where he's kind of, to, I think they hang him up in a church or something and they That's just, right. they kept saying, you know, where is your God now? Firing out. And, and this is attested in the Chronicles, is it? This is It is. And they chop off his head and um, they dump his head in in a wood and they dump his body elsewhere. And um, his followers come and rescue his body to keep it for, for, as a relic, but they can't find his head. Right. And then they hear coming from the wood the sound hick, 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 which isn't someone drunk. It's a wolf crying out in Latin, here, here, here. Oh. And he, the wolf is standing guard over the head and they're able That's to pick up story. the head and bury it. And so St. Edmund becomes the patron saint of, of, of the Angles and in due course of the Danes who become adopt Christian him. in due course yeah. and adopt him. And he is the, the, the patron saint of England for much of the Middle Ages. And there are lots of people who continue to think that he should be the, the patron saint. Among them, the, uh, the, the wonderful historian, Dr. Francis Young, who has right. written an entire book on St. Edmund and who once took me to uh, bury St. Edmund's and showed me the site of a tennis court where supposedly um, the relics remain to this day. <laughs> Under the tennis court. He's absolutely itching to dig it up, but the, the tennis players of Barry St. Edmunds are less keen on this. But I hope he gets a chance. But anyway, he 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 tweeted, of course, I hope England win against Denmark. But on the other hand, if the Danes beat us, it will give me an excuse to create endless St. Edmund memes. But this is um this is very ominous because this is a sort of heroic failure story. This is Gaza's tears crashing out. I mean, Edmund lost. I mean, his head was cut off. 
But we didn't, in our most recent match against Denmark, we lost, didn't we? We lost 1-0, I think. Well, it was a friendly, I think, wasn't it? Was yeah. it a friendly or was okay. it a qualifier so, so, or something? So, I can't remember. so we, we lost did. against the Vikings, against the Danes, when yeah. St. Edmund got shot to death. But we then ultimately won because the Danes all got converted to Christianity and accepted him as a saint. So I see it as a positive sign. I think I think that with 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 Saint Edmund looking down from heaven, um, everything's going to be okay. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. So the fellows who are involved with the killing of Edmund and are leading the Great Northern Army, um, as I recall from my The Last Kingdom watching, <laughs> Guthrum is is part who's a very sort of lugubrious, melancholy fellow, and ends up being the leader of the Great Northern Army, doesn't he? Or at least the most famous, yeah, sort of the most famous of these sort There's of. There's also warlords. a guy with the brilliant name of Hubba. Hubba, right? Which yeah, I, I, I think it's the best, the best name of an invader of England ever. Is it Hubba, or because in Bernard Cornwell he's renamed Ubba. So Hubba it, is much funnier. Right, Hubba is funnier. So <laughs> Guthrum, uh, this is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? He arrives in England, and, and and you know, sort of putting the historian's hat firmly on, you can sort of imagine there's a, obviously a push pull with the Viking invasions, isn't it? They're driven out because of competition for land or whatever in Scandinavia, but they're also drawn by the wealth of England. He arrives and he adopts the local religion eventually, doesn't he? I mean, does Alfred basically force him to do that? Is that what happens? So the Kingdom of Wessex holds out against kind of overwhelming force. Um, And the Vikings are are, are fleet, aggressive, and they're treacherous, or at least to the West Saxons, they seem treacherous because they don't basically hold to oaths. Yeah. And the, the, the ultimate mark of their treachery is that they attack Chippenham, where Alfred is holding court on Twelfth Night, so during the, the festival of Christmas. And this is very much not the dumb thing. It's 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 a kind of red card offence, really. But yeah. if I, you know, the Danes aren't playing by the rules, so they don't care. So that's when Alfred flees to the marshes of Athelney. He burns the cakes. He recruits men. He leads an army out. He defeats the the, the Danes. And he draws up a treaty whereby Guthrum will become um, a, a Christian. He takes on the, the, the Christian name of Athelstan um, and he gets what comes to be called the Dane law, which is basically East Anglia, Lincolnshire. And if you imagine Mercy with a line drawn from the Mersey down to the Thames, he gets the eastern half of that. Um, and Alfred then, having won in, in, in attack, then kind of consolidates his lead by building a great line of what are called burrs, kind of fortified market towns, again, along that line from the Mersey down to the Thames. And the Vikings can't really break through that. And in due course, they kind of smash themselves and smash themselves against this mighty line of defence. And then, uh, rather like on uh, Saturday night, um, England go on the attack. Um, And Athelflaed, who is Alfred's daughter, the Lady of the Mercians, I think the most heroic female political figure in in English history, her brother Edward, who's the king of the West Saxons. They go on the attack. Um, they, they they end up conquering all of England south of the Humber. Um, and then it's Athelstan, who is Alfred's grandson, uh, then conquers Northumbria and takes yeah. it back from the Danes. And it's it's not a kind of... Um, effectively, this is, the, this is the making of England. England then becomes a united kingdom. Um, the Danes do make a comeback. They recapture York. They actually capture quite a large swathe of, of land south of the Humber, but they get pushed back. And um, by the time uh, of um, that, that Athelstan's nephew Edgar becomes king, yeah. um, England is precociously unified. And what Edgar does is to insist on a kind of unitary currency. 
So all the silver comes directly under royal control. And that's a kind of degree of um, control over taxation, control over money that is absolutely unique in Western Europe. The only other empires that are doing it are um, Al-Andalus in the, in the south of Spain and the Byzantine Empire. But no other kind of you know, successor kingdom to the Roman Empire is doing it. Um, and, and this makes it, England seem rich. It makes it seem strong. But it's a bit like kind of, I don't know, walking down a dark alley with a, a kind of diamond necklace sticking out of your back pocket because, yeah. you know, the muggers, well, they're, they're in Ireland. So the Vikings have founded Dublin, the Blackpool. Dublin right. means Blackpool. Um, but they're also, of course, across the North Sea. And, so they've still um, got their eyes on England. Yeah. yeah. And under the reign of Edgar's son, Ethelred, unread, ill-advised, yeah. the, the Danes come back. Before we come to that, Tom, you skated over something I thought pretty shamefully, which is that the great battle that Ethelfled uh, and Ed Edward, I think, fight yeah. against the Danes. It's actually in... it's, it's Ethelfled and her fames. Edward has yeah. nothing to do with he, it. He pitches up late. Does he, does he yeah. pitch up afterwards or something? Um, it's in Wolverhampton, isn't it? It's yes, it is. It's the Battle of Tettenhall, or some people say Weddensfield. So those are two different sort of... Parts I think of, of Wolverhampton. One, I like to say Tettenhall because my grandparents used to live in Tettenhall. But so Wednesfield like is more romantic because it's obviously well, it's Wodenfield. Yeah. Uh, yes, and the Vikings. So the Vikings have have launched a great. So Athelflaed has has um, invaded Lincolnshire to grab back the relics of a, of a saint, which he then buries in um, uh, in Gloucester to serve as a kind of spiritual Star Wars and Iron Dome. To absolutely protect it with supernatural power, and the 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 Danes are so cross about this that they then launch a massive invasion. They 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 loot and, and burn as they're going back through Wolverhampton, or <laughs> the future site of Wolverhampton. They get attacked at a river and they perish beneath a rain of spears. The Anglo-Saxon oh, Chronicles. So great. Says. I mean, that happens um, to a lot of visiting fans when they <laughs> when they go to Wolverhampton. To be fair, so Tom, at this point, right. The Danes and the English, the English have started to see themselves as the English, haven't they? It's kind of in opposition to the Danes, I suppose. How different are they? Because in the, the let's say the the most famous fictional iteration of this, which is now the Bernard Cornwell books, there is this sense of a kind of culture clash between the pagan Danes, um, who like you know drinking and and having fun and killing people, and the slightly more sort of serious and pious. English who are all about kind of God and, and monasteries and stuff. Is that, is that rooted in a genuine cultural difference or are, would they have recognized one another as kind of brethren, if you like, with, with actually similar roots, similar habits, um, all that sort of stuff? What, what's the answer there? The, the during, during the, the, the wars that, that Alfred and his, um, heirs fight, um, I think there is a sense of of difference, uh, and it, it it's much greater during the time of Alfred before Guthrum and his followers get baptized. Yeah. But even once they've been baptized, they are kind of um, alien figures. But they they adapt very very quickly. That you know they 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 become devout, uh, devoutly Christian because they see that the Christian God has has basically defeated them, and they come under the cultural influence and the economic influence of the much stronger West Saxon monarchy. So I've got a wonderful coin which I I own which was found um, in, a, in a pile of, of um, coins in Rome, taken there by um, a, a Dane from East Anglia on pilgrimage. Uh, and it, it's a fake. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fake made by the Viking, but made by the Danes in the Dane law, 
to to simulate one of the coins stamped by Edward Alfred's son. Wow. So what you see there They're is evidence. You know, yeah. And then he's going on pilgrimage to Rome. So he's he's you know he's he's become English to the degree that he's adopted the English religion and yeah. he is is kind of you know economically subordinate. So so the influence, the cultural influence of England is 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 very great. I mean having said that, you do get fulminations from um from Anglo-Saxon moralists complaining about um, Danish habits, which include wearing eyeliner. Oh, that's bad. Shaving the back, shaving the back of your head. So no mullets for Vikings. Um, right. And worst of all, yeah. having having baths every Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> when Saturday comes, you so have a bath. Sort of, and that's, the, eyeliner, that's, that's, the eyeliner in a bath seems very new romantic to me. Well, very feminine. It's regarded as the height of effeminacy by the, the manly and upright. I never thought of the Danes as effeminate. I mean, if Danish <laughs> listeners will be pleased to hear that, I always have thought of the Danes as very um, vigorous, virile kind of uh, Yeah, there's obviously there's a, there's a lot to tease out there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not least in my tortured subconscious, I suppose. Um, so let me ask you a question about the Dane law. Um, the, the Dane law, are the people there conscious of themselves let's say their second or third generation, do they still think of themselves as Danes or do they think of themselves as English, would you say? Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, kind of. Or is that too simplistic a question? I, I, is... I, th- I mean, it, it, it tends to fade over the generations, but but obviously the um, the impact of, of spoken Danish is evident in, in the place names. Um, yes. And I think it, it does last for quite, a, for quite a while. But it, I mean, it's certainly complicated by the way that Danish settlers come to accept, say, Edmund as their, yeah. their patron. Um. So it is complex, and even you know, and and it's it, it it a further sign of how complex it is is that when under um, Athelred you start to get the the Danes coming back in increasing numbers, yeah, um, they are doing it as Christians. They've become Christian, and it doesn't stop them. Athelred the Unready. I, I remember in my Lady Bird, kings and queens of England or Anglo-Saxon kings or whatever it was called. Uh, he came out very poorly. Not as badly as King John that we did a few weeks ago, who we agreed was, um, in in your words, a shit. But Ethelred the Unready was he he was a he was the Theresa May of kings, wasn't he? He was, um, he was just floundering from crisis to crisis, basically. And what yes. goes wrong there? How come the Danes well, sweep back in such numbers? Th- th- there is a wonderful biography of him. I mean, biography in the loosest sense because you can't really write a biography in in the modern sense by Levi Roche. Um, which is does a good job at, at attempt at revisionism. Right. Basically, he's dealt a very tough hand, and he's incredibly rich relative to everyone else. Uh, and so he obviously he does a sensible thing. He tries to buy them off. Dane you know, that's the that's the famous Dane Geld. Yeah. But the problem is, as Kipling goes on to point out, that if you pay Dane Geld, then you know more and more people will come, and it, it ends up with a situation where the the, the kingdom gets gets conquered. Um. Ethelred flees to Normandy, comes back, dies. He's succeeded by his son Edmund Ironside, who is, you know, proper storming centre forward. Hence his, yeah, his, great his nickname. But he 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 kind of fights to a standstill with with Knut. Um, Knut inher- he he then dies supposedly on the on the toilet. Um, quite a lot of people supposedly die on the toilet in this period. I was about to say, this is a theme of whenever you talk about the Vikings. <laughs> well, it is. Well, I've already mentioned Knut's grandfather, um, Harold Bluetooth, twice, I think, on this this podcast as the guy who, first of all, famously gives his name to Bluetooth technology, but also ends up being shot in the arse by, uh, by an archer while he's having a dump. Yeah. Um, but Harold Bluetooth is also significant because he's the first Christian king. 
Right. So he's the first king who converts to Christianity. Yeah. Um, and and so so Svein Fortbrid, his son, who's the, who is actually the guy who leads the attack on Wilton that we began this podcast with. That's Svein Fortbeard. Right. Anknut are supposedly Christian, but that doesn't stop them being any the less terrifying. They are masters of a huge North Sea empire, am I right? An empire that looks like one of the most potent states in Northern Europe, if not the most potent. Yeah, so so Bluetooth, one of the reasons why Bluetooth technology is named after it is that that um, there's this stone at Yelling in Denmark where um, Harold Bluetooth puts up this uh, inscription where he talks about, he, he boasts about the way that he has joined people together. And by that, right. he means, you know, South Norway, South Sweden, brought them all together. And he then, you know, his son, his grandson, then move on to conquer England as well. And let's, let's ask the question that a lot of listeners will be asking, which is about Canute and the waves. Yes. So well, we've got, we've got Michael FKA, haven't we? Have you got that? I have. Um, Michael yeah. FKA says very much looking forward to the Canute acknowledges the inexorable power of the English tide <laughs> analogy. <laughs> Yes, but unfortunately, uh, well, Knut's now. This is always painted as Knut is an oaf and a fool who is washed. You know, no, is, it's it's the opposite. But it's completely wrong, isn't it? It's Knut the opposite. Is actually, so, so it's courtiers so, who are the fools, and he is the wise man. So, so Knut is terrifying. He, he's young. He's mean. He's incredibly rapacious. Once he's become king of England, he imposes a one hundred percent tax rate. That's that's harsh. That sort of makes Dennis Healy look uh, like yes. a tax cutter. <laughs> he makes the pips squeak. Yes. The whole revenue of an, a single year in England goes into his coffers. But he then slightly calms down. A mere 90% next time. Christianity and the traditions of Anglo-Saxon monarchy are, are prestigious and stylish. Um, you know, he wants to be a part of it. I guess it's yeah. that Peter Schmeichel coming to Manchester United. Yeah, and Mulby. Uh, yes. who arrived in England speaking with a very strong Danish accent and ended with a Scouse accent because he played for Liverpool all those there you years. Go. So that's that's kind of what that, I like to see. That's Knut. The, the analogy. Um, yeah. And he becomes a model of Christian kingship. So he actually he endows Wilton prodigiously. There's kind of wonderful illustrations of, of him and his queen doing that. Um, and the story of him uh, holding back the tide, it, it's his response to a flatterer. Who says that you're capable of doing anything? And he says, "No, but I can't." Uh, so he orders his court to come down, and he puts the uh, the throne by the on the beach, and he holds his hand up to stop the tide. And of course, the tide comes in. And yeah. the the point is about the inadequacy of human beings compared to God. And so, so basically, he becomes, I, I suppose, to that extent, um, anglicised. He then has two sons, um, Harold Harefoot. Yeah. And half a canute. They're, and then you're they, into they're, they're incredibly they? boring. They they kind of don't really do anything. Um <laughs> he then gets seeded by Edward Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor gets seeded by Harold Godwinson. Then you have William the Conqueror, and it's under William the Conqueror you, yeah. um uh in um ten sixty nine, so three years after the Battle of Hastings, that you get the final Danish attempt at an invasion when uh, another Danish king called Svein is invited over by rebels in the north comes up the Humber, occupies York, um, William advances, the rebels flee, the Danes are kind of stranded, so they get back in their ships, they go down to East Anglia again, as their forebears had done, they ravage East Anglia. William the Conqueror pays them Danegeld. He bribes them to go does away. Does he? I didn't know he that does. about William the Conqueror. Yeah, he does. That... They sail away, and that is basically it. 
Why don't they come back ever again? I suppose they've been sufficiently Christianized that 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 tradition is starting to fade. The tradition of, of becoming yeah. a Viking is starting to fade. But it, it's also the the strength and the power of um, the Norman monarchy that that William establishes, um, and the sense of a kind of Christian commonality between all the various kingdoms. Okay. Um, so I think that if we're talking Anglo-Danish relations, it's very much a game of two halves. Well, I was about to say first so the first half, half, it's it's the Danes kicking sand in the faces of the English. So what's the second the half? What's the score? Would you say, Tom? I think it's three, uh, three one to Eng- to Denmark. Three, I think three that's, one to Denmark. That's bad. If it's three one at half time on Wednesday, I shall be deeply. De- well, if it's one three, I shall be deeply. <laughs> but don't, it's a game of two halves. So it let's see what happens in the second half. We'll so, see you soon. Back they go to the dressing rooms. Gareth Southgate can have a word, and we'll see uh, if the picture changes after the break. See you in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, for our international listeners who are baffled <laughs> after the first half hour of this podcast, I should say that uh, this is a podcast about Anglo-Danish relations to tie in with the semi-final of Euro 2020 being played in 2021 at Wembley between England and Denmark on Wednesday evening. Tom and I are very excited. Everybody in England basically is very overexcited, aren't they, Tom? And I assume everybody in Denmark too. The Danes are leading after the first historical half. 3-1 after um, Tom Holland's description of their various assaults on, on England in the Viking Age. Tom, I think we're going to leap forward in time, aren't we now? I, I'm not aware of the Danes doing anything in the sort of 13th, 14th, 15th century. Are you? I mean, they must no, have been not really. something. But, nothing, um, nothing worth discussing. I think really. we should leap right forward. Do you have anything to say before we get to the Stuart era? No. Or not? No. Cut, let's, let's, let's cut to James the first. James the sixth. 
it is the it is the proverbial game of two halves. So I have um done a bit of digging into the story of Anne of Denmark, who is an extraordinary figure. So Anne of Denmark um marries James the Sixth of Scotland, who becomes James the First of England. She's the second daughter of Frederick the Second of Denmark. So the sort of early modern period is quite a Denmark's a pretty sizable, you know, sort of military power. And also it's Lutheran, isn't it? It is. And and so there aren't that many Lutheran kingdoms. And, no. and there's certainly not many Protestant kingdoms. And so that's the key. I mean, this, these are great days for Sweden and Denmark, actually. They're really sort of fighting for control of the, the Baltic and stuff. Um, but a Danish alliance is much to be prized if you're a Protestant. So James VI is married to, of Scotland is married to Anne of Denmark when she's 14. And at first they get on pretty well. But just before he's about to become king of England, it all starts to go wrong. So they first fall out bizarrely because uh, over the custody of their son, so they're not divorced, but they still have fallen out over the custody, because apparently the practice in Scotland is the eldest son is given away to be brought up. And she just thought, you know, this is like a sort of ancestor of people sending their kids away to boarding Gordon school. Stone. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of incredibly vicious <laughs> boarding schools, like Prince Charles at yeah. the age of two or something. <laughs> and Anne of Denmark is outraged that her son Henry is given to the Earl of Mar to be. And, and that sort of... I think that kind of creates a bit of a rift that never really heals. So then just before James comes to England, there's a thing called the Gowrie Conspiracy, where these two guys, I think they're two guys, um, they, they have a plot to kill James. This is happening all the time in Scotland in the late, uh, in the late 16th century. And um, they're killed by his attendants. And then, not unreasonably, he wants to get rid of their sisters who are her ladies in waiting his wife's ladies in waiting so he says well obviously her sister their sisters can't stay on as ladies in waiting after they've tried to kill me um the <laughs> queen fair enough don't you? anna denmark is outraged by this and she stages a hunger strike and she stays <laughs> in bed she won't get out of bed because she's really close to them and um eventually james mollifies her by hiring an acrobat and sending the acrobat to entertain her and kind of lure her out of bed does it work it does work. I mean, she, the hunger strike is over. Um, but I think there's still bad blood because they go to England. They establish a household. He sends a message to her after a while. He says he doesn't like her, her English household. He sends her a message. His majesty takes her continued perversity very heinously, which I think is <laughs> it's a, it's a marital message you don't want to receive. And doesn't, doesn't she, she's well, dog or yes, something? Yes, yes, exactly. Dead dogs. For, if anyone has listened to this podcast it? for the first time, dead dogs are a theme of our podcast. And um, James had a dog called either either Jewel or Jowler. <laughs> They're quite different names, I think. I mean, you picture the dog very differently if it's called Jewel yes. or Jowler. Anyway, Jewel or Jowler is his favourite dog. Supposedly, his quote, his special and most favourite hound. And she shoots him with a crossbow. <laughs> Just... By accident or well, so deliberately? It's, it's, hard or? To, it's hard, really hard to make out. I had to look at the original <laughs> source, and it's very that's, unclear. It's quite a quite a quite a drastic move, isn't it? It's very drastic. <laughs> if your wife killed your pet dog with a crossbow, I mean, that's that's, that's pretty. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's hard to come back from that. James apparently, I mean, it's such a strange story. He was absolutely furious when he saw his dog with a crossbow bolt. You would and, be, and he was he he went round in an, an enormous huff. And uh, his servant said, well, it's actually the queen who did it. 
And at that point, supposedly, this is such a weird story. He calms down. He's not so angry. He sent her a jewel worth £2,000. which so is that suggests the dog's name is Jewel, surely. Right, which is the equivalent. So, well, maybe there's some confusion, though. Well, uh, which is the equivalent of about £10 million today. And he says, quote, it was a legacy from his dear dead dog. I mean, that's worthy of the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Yeah, it's such that's, a strange... That's great. Why would you do that? Why didn't we Why didn't we remember this when we were going through our list of famous de- dead dogs? Well, we didn't know about it. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, I, when you say remember it, I mean, we didn't know it until about a day ago. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, th- I think... Did you know this? I, yes, I did. I didn't I did. know this. I did. I knew that she killed his dog. And suddenly, well, thinking about it, came back to me. Um, yeah, now, of course, I suppose that what lies behind a lot of this, though, Tom, is that James I's sexuality is in some doubt, isn't it? So I think by this point... And he slobbered. Yeah, his tongue was as, too big as, for his mouth. Yes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> he's obsessed by witches. <laughs> his tongue's too big for his mouth. He slobbers. And he's he's also, always going after young men with very long legs. <laughs> the, the Duke yes. of Buckingham. The Duke yes. of Buckingham. He's got a fancy for the Duke of Buckingham. So... Presented with all this, this Danish pr- queen just driven mad. But but from the point of view of Anglo Anglo um, Danish rivalry, important to point out he's of course Scottish. Yes, although he's so, also the King of England. He, he is, is the, the King, King of England. England. I mean, we're not just subsuming. So Scotland. there is a further dimension to this. Yes, pointed out by uh, none other than Simon Sharma. Uh, yes, Queen Anne. Show. Isn't it weird that Hamlet was performed before King James and and um, Queen Anne at Hampton Court? Especially yeah. since James's mother's story, not un- altogether unlike Gertrude's. <laughs> well, this yeah, is so the thing. I think this lies behind the dog murder. Yeah, she, oh, has, right. she has moved to England. She's moved to Scotland first, then to England. Uh, she's been forced to watch plays about Denmark that paint Danish history in a very <laughs> dark and convoluted light. Um, but, uh, I mean, so, so on the Shakespeare angle, James, yeah. when he went to, to, to pick her up, yes, um, he, uh, he does visit Elsinore, which is the setting for, for Hamlet. Have you so been that's to obviously, Elsinore? I have been to Elsinore. It's great. It has a, a, it's a great castle. It has a remarkable thing among tourist attractions, which I almost admire them for because it's so shameless. You have to when we went, you have to follow a very particular route. You can't sort of deviate. They have kind it's of cellars, don't they? It's a one way system. Yeah, but the one way system leads you twice through the gift shop <laughs> through, different, <laughs> <laughs> through different parts of the gift I, shop. I didn't remember that. Um, but obviously, blank. Well, now. if you, if you travel around with a child, you know you yes, really do notice legal. it because you have yeah. faced two barrages of "Can I buy a sword? Can I buy a, a you know, Hamlet's helmet or something?" Um, yes. Yeah, so, so, so anyway, and and really matters because her brother is going to play a, a big part in. Well, he okay, almost well, plays. Well, Dominic, could, yeah. Could, so just on the Shakespeare theme, there yes. are two other famous tragedies that have uh, an Anglo-Danish link. And one, is, one is Macbeth, because when they're coming back, so when Anne is, is, and James are coming back um, across the North Sea, the terrible storms, and James blames this on witches. So that's kind of part of what turbocharges his obsession with witchcraft. And there's an allusion to this in, in Macbeth with the witches that, okay. that, that hail That's Macbeth. But the other one is, so Christian IV, who is yes. Anne's, I think, younger brother and a massive and a very, lad. A very powerful king. Yes. Massive lad. Um, he comes over on a state visit he to does. London. I, I was going to mention this. I'm gutted that you've got him first. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the reason I mention it with the Shakespeare context is that, that they have a kind of rendezvous on a ship. So James comes down on a rather wussy barge. 
and um, Christian has this massive ship and they right. meet up and have a rendezvous on the ship like Antony and Octavian in Antony Cleopatra. Oh, and that's so a good fact. James Shapiro in his, um, his book on uh, Shakespeare in 1606 suggests that this was the inspiration for that passage in Antony and Cleopatra. Don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a, a Shakespearean Anglo-Danish angle. To what I was going to say about Christian IV, he comes over on a state visit in 1606 to visit his sister, and it goes incredibly well, well stroke badly, because the Danes are very hard drinking, yeah. and they all drink a colossal amount, and everybody at court is struck by this. And they stage at um, James's country house, they put on a mask of um, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and it turns into an absolute fiasco because the Danes have all been drinking all day, and they encourage the English to drink as well. Many of the actors are so drunk they fall over and can't say their lines. A custom more honoured in the breach than in the observance. Very good. As Hamlet Tom. would say. Very good. Very good. Uh, okay, well, I think that's enough about Queen Anne because we've got to move on because we've well, still got lots more fourth, to cover. The, Christian the Fourth is still in the. He's hovering oh, about. Yes, because, of course, of course. Because, now we've got Dan Dan Jackson's tweet. Yeah, because right, Charles the First, who is half Danish. I had never thought of him as half Danish, but Charles I is basically the personification of English history. Half Dane, well, half half Scottish, yes. actually, isn't he? Yes. Um, so that um, uh, he, at the outbreak of the Civil War, Dan Jackson points out, asks Christian IV for military aid, something I did not know at all. And the Danes have, have you got have you got the tweet there, Tom? From uh, I have Dan? yes. So so Dan Dan Jackson, who of course uh, author of Northumbrians, who appeared on our. Um, north south divide episode says uh, if you're musing on anglo-danish relations and this is intriguing in 1642 charles the first asked his uncle christian the fourth for military aid but in return the danes wanted orkney shetland and to gain possession of newcastle in pawn and uh, the the motive for this seems to have been commercial as newcastle was renowned for her coal and salt industries so um you know danish newcastle yeah they wanted a bit. They wanted the Danor back, basically. Clearly, yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and they didn't get but it. It didn't work out, did it? No. So Christian IV later, I believe, sent some people with with ships and a load of armor, and uh, to to offer to Charles I. And somehow, they they are detained by parliamentarians and and beaten up or something, and then sent back. Um, and and, and that's nothing it. comes of it. So that's a great missed. You know, it's a great missed opportunity for Denmark. And, do, and Dominic, do we have anything on Anglo-Danish relations between that? And 1801. We don't, but 1801 is such a great date. I think we should get so straight tell, to 1801. So, so tell us why 1801 is a great date. So 1801, the Napoleonic Wars, um, uh, the British have tried to... The French and the British have imposed rival kind of blockades on each other. And um, all the Baltic sort of countries, Russia, um, Prussia, Denmark, Sweden, they want to break the British blockade. They want to carry on trading. And the British are having none of this. Um, Nelson, who's been off around the world, is sent off to the Baltic and is told, you know, you have to impose the blockade and stop these people breaking out. And especially we're worried that they might join the French. Nelson says, well, in his sort of swashbuckling spirit, he says, well, let's just let's just blow them all up. So he goes off into Copenhagen Harbour and the Admiral, Admiral Parker waits behind him. And on the 2nd of April, 1801, Nelson attacks and he attacks with such force, there's huge amounts of smoke all over the harbour. And the Admiral sends him a signal so to withdraw, basically worried that um, British ships are running aground. Yeah. Now, the, the Admiral kind of knows that if things are going well, Nelson will ignore it. And that's precisely what Nelson does. So Nelson says to his flag captain, the man called Thomas Foley, 
He's, he know, he's been told there's a signal. He says to Foley, you know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes. And he lifts the telescope and he puts it to the blind eye because he's been blinded in Corsica in 1794. And he says, I really do not see the signal, Yeah, um, which, of course, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, so we carry on attacking. Uh, we capture six Danish ships. We sink three of them. And as a reward for this, Nelson is made Viscount Nelson of the Nile, um, which is a great title. Now, I will say... This story is probably untrue. <laughs> I mean, that's such a shame. So Roger Knight, who is uh, Nelson's biographer, says this is prob this stuff about the telescope is probably an apocryphal story created after the event. But th- that that needn't stop it being an inspiration for anyone threatened with substitution. No, no right, exactly. Night, yes, I I do not see it. My blind eye is turned, <laughs> and then going on to score the winning goal. Yes, so, so that might be the parallel. Maybe. But then, but so, so we have that. But then we also have another attack in 1807. Yeah. I, so if you're Danish listening to this, that's the one you'll probably remember, not 1801. Because this is really bad because we basically just, it's a preemptive strike, isn't it? Yeah. We, we're worried about them joining the French again. This time we just think, go for it. Yeah. The, uh, the British land 30,000 troops. They bombard um, well, Copenhagen. Well, go on, Tom. You got something to say? Okay. Well, I just. Yeah, so, so this is very pretty shameful, actually, which is obviously why people in England don't know about it. But one person who does know about it unexpectedly to me is Lord Frost, who, of course, is the was the Brexit negotiator. The chief Brexit. He, does he as he threatened this? As he he should threaten this during Brexit um, negotiations? No, but he but but so before he became the Brexit negotiator, he was a diplomat, right? And uh, he was the ambassador to Copenhagen. So he t- he tweeted yesterday. I have something you may be interested in for your Anglo-Danish episode. My own rough translation into English, done when I was ambassador in Denmark, of the pamphlet we published with the Danish authorities about the 1807 siege of Copenhagen. Tom, are you receiving advice about the podcast from our chief Brexit negotiator? Yes, I am. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a nice. Uh, and, uh, and there's um, there's a, a fantastic description of it of um, of all the, uh, the the kind of the gun, you know, the, the firing these um, missiles that they developed and. Uh, Yes, are they Congreve Congreve rockets? Congreve rockets, which They're was the same was invention of the, the um, of the Kingdom of Mysore that then got developed by Congreve and yeah, but they they're the, they're the rockets that are bursting in the Star Spangled Banner. Yes, we use them. The, at the same yes, time. the very same. But we fire them at Copenhagen. But we also have another another tweet from um, Tapani Simajoki, who is uh, a Lutheran pastor in Hampshire. Um, and You've got all the was, contacts, haven't you? Yes, yes, <laughs> and he he discusses a hymn. Built yeah. on the rock, the church doth stand, which he says was inspired retrospectively by the deliberate destruction of the Church of Our Lady, which was a medieval church, by the British in the Battle of Copenhagen. A famously godly lot, the British gunners used the spire for range practice. Yes, well, this is true. We did. So our gunners did use the church spires um, to, to get their sights, and they just blasted the hell out of them. Yeah. So there we go. So a lot of help there from... Yes, from, a, from a, various... a, a Brexit uh, finish uh, axis there. So thank you to Lord Frost and to Dapani for for uh, for that. One other quick um, one of the quick Napoleonic Wars references that um, to honour in, in tribute to Nelson's heroics at Copenhagen, if heroics you can call them, the Duke of Wellington called his horse Copenhagen. Of course he did, and the because nearest he was fold he was fold during the. Yes, attack, and right. the nearest Wellington came to death at the Battle of Waterloo was when he got off Copenhagen at the end. Copenhagen tried to kick him and almost kicked him in the head, which would have killed him. And Copenhagen is still buried, I believe, at the Duke of Wellington's house at Stratford Say. 
Stratfield say, sorry. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. There you go. Okay, well, there you go. Um, now, I think you have an excellent, excellent story uh, suggested by Nelson Jones. Am I right? Uh, yes, I do. So to read Nelson's... Uh, what an I've got Nelson's tweet if you don't have it. Yeah, no, um, I've got it. Um, so he's he, this is on the Anglo-Danish theme. Some will say Nelson, others the Great Northern Army. But for me, the absolute low point in Anglo-Danish relations was Hans Christian Andersen outstaying his welcome at Dickens's house, which is which is indeed a great story of of Anglo-Danish hostility. So, so go on, Tom, you tell you tell you take us into the story. So the story, is so Hans Christian Andersen, the favorite, you know, Hans Christian Andersen and Dickens, probably you know, two. F- Colossal 19th century writers. Hans Christian Andersen, author of The Little Mermaid, statue of yeah. which stands in Copenhagen to this day. Um, he comes to England when his, his stories get first get published in English um, on a kind of book tour. And he meets with Dickens in 1847 at an aristocratic soiree. And Dickens, very polite, says, oh, I like your stuff. Uh, <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen idolises Dickens and is all over him. And he goes back to uh, Copenhagen and basically writes to Dickens pretty much every day in, yeah. in the most effusive terms. And Dickens kind of dead bats this and dead bats this, but had, had made the terrible mistake. Of <laughs> We've saying, all done it. We've all done things like of, this, haven't we? Say, oh, well, if you come back to London, you must look me up. Which, <laughs> which Anderson in due course in 1857, so a decade later, does. And he goes to Gads Hill. Dickens well, wait a second, Tom. Does he not say, I'm going to come for at most, at most... Days. Yeah, something like it's yeah. two days or two yeah. weeks, but anyway, it's a short yeah. period of time. Uh, so he turns out Dick- <laughs> at Gads Hill, Dickens' house out in um, by Rochester, and it's a terrible time for Dickens because his 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 marriage is breaking up. Uh, he's just published Little Dorrit, which hasn't done very well, um, and he's in the midst of rehearsing for a, for a play um, with Wilkie Collins. So he's got lots on his plate. <laughs> Hans Christian Anderson turns up and is an absolutely monstrous house guest. So first of all, he, 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 he declares that it's the custom in Denmark for the son of the host to shave the guest every day. I mean, that's, so, so, that's such a high risk yes, gambit from a guest, know, isn't it? it? I mean, is. if it goes wrong. It is. <laughs> and, and so Dickens' sons refuse to do this and they send him off into Rochester to have his shaving done there. Hans Christian Anderson won't leave Dickens alone and they're going into a, a, a dinner party. Dickens offers his arm to a lady. Hans Christian Anderson rushes in, elbows the lady aside, <laughs> takes his arm and clings to it. This oh, isn't God. the dumb thing either. That's quite strange behaviour, isn't it, really? <laughs> he goes to watch Dickens um, perform in the play, The, the Frozen Deep. Yeah. Uh, and he very, very ostentatiously bursts into tears and sobs the whole way through it, <laughs> throwing all the actors off course. He gets a bad review and hurls himself into a flower bed, sobbing and beating the <laughs> beating the earth of the flower bed with his hands. I'd love to see some of the Danish players do that on Wednesday. Oh, wouldn't say. be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> and essentially, he stays for weeks and weeks. He stays five weeks in the end, and and when he goes, um, he he's dismissed by Dickens's daughter as a bony bore. <laughs> well, Dickens yes. writes large numbers of bitchy letters. One of them to um, Lord John Russell, his former former Prime Minister, in which he claims. <laughs> But he complains about um, Hans Christian Andersen's linguistic skills. I saw that. He said he doesn't 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 speak can't French, even write doesn't Danish. Speak English, <laughs> can't even write Danish. <laughs> That's but whether hard. Dickens could speak Danish, I, I, I doubt. I, I mean, I imagine any Danish listeners will will be amused at the idea of an English person 
insulting the Danes for their lack of linguistic ability. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. So I, I wouldn't advise any of England's players to do that on Wednesday. I think that would be very foolish. Um, so that's obviously a, a, a that's sort a of great story. I mean, that's a goal for England. Um, yes. And actually, if things weren't going badly enough for Denmark, not long after that, just a few years after that, the Danes suffer this sort of great um, trauma, don't they, of losing Schles- I can't even say it, Schleswig-Holstein. Uh, that's all a shambles, but I'm not even going to try to redo it. Schleswig-Holstein is that is that about right? That that's right. Probably, yeah. Um, so this is the most one of the famously the most complicated um, diplomatic dilemma in European history, isn't it? And 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 Britain could have intervened to save the Danes, but refused to. So the the Duchess of Schleswig. Go on, say it again. <laughs> the Duchess of God, the listeners Schles- you <laughs> Schleswig and Holstein are attached to Denmark. Very good. They're in personal union with the Danish crown, but they're not part of Denmark. They're part of the German Holstein is part of the German Confederation. So there's a very confusing picture. And um there was a thing called the London Protocol, which had been agreed to ensure I don't know, to ensure the sort of integrity of Denmark, but also the integrity of these other places. Um, nobody understood it. Lord Palmerston famously said, only three people have ever really understood the Schleswig-Holstein business. The prince consort who is dead, the German professor who has gone mad, <laughs> and I who have forgotten all about it. That's pretty much how I feel about a lot of the things we talk about in this podcast. Um, the, the Danes tried to make Schleswig-Holstein part of Denmark, basically, to sort of rationalize it all. The Prussians and the Austrians invade. There is a huge amount of hullabaloo in England. People say we should intervene to save the Danes. But it gets swallowed up, doesn't it? It does get swallowed up. Palmerston wanted to, despite saying he knew nothing, he'd forgotten all about it, he actually wanted to help the Danes, to do something to help them. And Queen Victoria said no. She was too pro-German. So, and this is the first building block in the creation of Germany. It's the first yes. of the three great wars that Bismarck fights. But so you he know, fights the Danes, then he fights. So he's getting, he's fighting progress. It's a bit like a tournament. He's yeah. fighting progressively the, tougher opponents. Yeah. yeah. The Danes, the Austrians, and then the French. But you know, this also, it has a link with the very beginnings of, of this podcast because it, along the, 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 the neck of the peninsula separating Denmark from Germany. Yes. Is, and again, Danish listeners will probably laugh at my pronunciation, the Danavirka. Very good. I, I, I love Danavirka. The Danavirka. Yeah. That's Swedish. Is, you said that in Swedish. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm drifting <laughs> off. Um, the uh, great, a great earthwork built in about, begun in about 650, continued across the, the early Middle Ages um, by legend um, commissioned by the mother of uh, Harold Bluetooth. And um, still standing there when the, the Schleswig Holstein crisis erupts. How come you, uh, you can say it so, so easily? Well, that's my master of uh, mastery yeah. of nineteenth-century continental yeah. history, Dominic, and, and of Scandinavian much to learn from. Clearly, yeah. Anyway, so I reckon I reckon that that has got England up to. I think we've gone into the lead there. Do you think so? I think. It, um, so I reckon depressed. we're three-one. Well, I think there's one more. Uh, sorry, sorry, four, three-four. I think. I think there's one more thing we should mention, which is again a suggestion from Dan Jackson. Oh, yes. Well, okay, so 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 we've. I reckon we've won. Right, but we want to end on on a note of amity and brotherhood. Yes, and a reminder of the fact that you know there's there's a lot to celebrate. Yeah, Denmark is a great country. I love Denmark. I like, I've been to Denmark on holiday. I think it's an absolutely splendid country. I like it because it's like, frankly, I mean, this is a terrible indictment of me, but I like it because it's quite like England. <laughs> but it's quite. It's also quite like the Netherlands. 
Yes, it is. But I think so the it's, Dane... it's it's my wife's favorite place to go on holiday. Is it Denmark? Yeah, she doesn't. She 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 burns very easily, so she hates the Mediterranean. What right. she likes is kind of faintly drizzly places with yeah, good cafes, bicycles, nice brick buildings. So, yeah, Netherlands yeah. and Denmark. That, that's their idea of heaven. That's all good. So tell anyway. us. Let's go to Dan Jackson. That's um. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um. Well, he's uh, so Dan. So Dan basically sent this um picture of the memorial in Newcastle Cathedral, and it's a and the memorial reads. In memory of Danish seamen of all ranks who gave their lives in the service of their country in the years 1939 to 1945. When you read their names, remember that they died for Denmark. They died for freedom so that we, like them, might live as free Danes. Very stirring. And the, and the history behind that is that Denmark, when it was attacked by the Germans, it surrendered in six hours. I mean, they basically had no... 9th of April, 1940. They, exactly. They surrendered before breakfast. I mean, literally at breakfast, um, the Germans having attacked overnight. And all the Danish ships that could sailed to Britain and were put under Allied flags with a, a Danish crew. And the home of the Danish fleet was Newcastle. So um, Danish seamen settled in Newcastle for the duration of the war. They had Danish clubs. They had Danish church. They had a sort of a part of the harbour that was called the Danish Pool. Um, and afterwards, they opened a church in Newcastle with a kind of book of remembrance and stuff. And, and eventually that closed down once the um, Danes, the Danish presence dwindled and it moved into the cathedral. But Newcastle, which, of course, Christian IV had claimed, yeah. had wanted in 1642, it ended up becoming a little bit of Denmark. And there is kind of a little bit of Newcastle that is, um, that is a bit of Denmark in the form of this memorial. Yeah. So it's a lovely, yeah. lovely story. It is, it is a wonderful story. And I think a, a really good note on which to end. Spended. Um, because because so. I think, you know, it, it has been a theme throughout these um, episodes that we've done on the, the rivalry between England and the various countries that the, our football team has been playing. But again and again, there's this emphasis on, on the way as well in which you know, relations have been good and rich and productive as well. Yeah. I think that's the right note on which to end. Even with the Scots. Even with the Scots, yes. Um, right. Um, so we will see you next time. Maybe, who knows? I hope I'm not jumping the gun. There might be a chance for one more bonus podcast yeah, before the tournament Spanish, is over. Anglo-Italian relations, but that Let's is all us. down to the Danes. If the wrath, of, the wrath of the Dane descends yeah. on the England football team as it did on yeah. Linden Farm and on East Anglia, uh, we will not be back with that. But um, no. if we manage to do as King Alfred did and, and defy the wrath of the Northmen, then... Um, Hopefully we'll be back with either. Yes. And let's hope for none of the conduct that we saw at uh, Wilton right at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, let's hope not. On that note, goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com That's restishistorypod.com Hold up. 